Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 150, recorded on June 11th of 2021, the Photo Geekery Show, where yeah, I'm your host, Don Kamarechka, and uh, I geek out about photo things, usually with a guest host, and uh, it's industry news, and this week we actually have some really sciencey stuff. And uh, what better a guest to have on a super sciencey show than my very good friend, Steve Brazel. Steve, how are you doing today? I'm doing quite well. Thank you, as always, for having me because it's a highlight of my week when I'm on this show. Well, and of course, I already knew you were doing well because we just finished wrapping up the Behind the Shot Critique show, uh, which we do once a month on your YouTube channel. And uh, and you can find that at uh, the BehindTheShot.tv website as well. Uh, that's going well for you. I think you've had some pretty good interviews lately with some very uh, charismatic photographers and, and their images. I've enjoyed those conversations. Thank you very much. The one the one that I've got out right now was really wild to do. It's with Estras Suarez, a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner, um, a shot of Islamic fighters in Gaza City, uh, crazy photojournalism shot. And I've got some great people. One of the official photographers of the band The Who uh, I'll be recording with coming up soon. I've got a couple uh, Canon Explorers of Light coming up. Um, yeah, it's fun. I, I, I Behind the shot is one of those just kind of like you with this show. I just love doing it. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't get paid to, to do this podcast, although, yeah. uh, you know, every once in a while, somebody puts some money into a tip jar and that's fine. That helps, uh, you know, pay the bills of, uh, of keeping all the bandwidth, uh, you know, affordable. But I have been, and Steve, I, I wanted to actually ask your uh, opinion on this because Apple's been making I have lots opinions. of announcements. Um, uh, Apple, you know, they've got, the, we had the, the whole um, uh, Apple uh, WWDC recently, and not a whole lot of things really pertain to photographers. This isn't a story in the, in the rundown per se. Um, but prior to that, Apple had also announced that they were uh, opening up a subscription model uh, to their podcasting. And I've been looking right. at that with the possibilities of, um, and I want to say this right off the top for anybody that you know listens to this podcast, um, would you be willing to pay like a dollar a month, $2 a month, maybe. Uh, and you can do yearly discounts. So you could do a dollar a month or $10 a year, I believe. And that's not to say that you would have to pay that because if you didn't want to pay anything, you'd still get it. It's just, okay, uh, maybe I would put uh, the Inside the Lens podcast, which is very seldomly updated with new stuff. But, you know, maybe that would be the incentive for me to record more of those episodes uh, and have that as an added bonus to subscribers. But the Photo Geek Weekly podcast is always going to be completely free for everybody. Um, I, I think that that makes sense. And if you enjoy this content, that would allow me to uh, spend more time on it. And, uh, you know, it's been a labor of love for a very long time. This is episode 150. Uh, it's it's a milestone number for me. And, um, well, I'm glad it's still going. I'm glad people are still listening to this thing and that the numbers are still growing. So it's uh, that, that's an interesting question, though, because same here. My podcast is a labor of love. It's not cheap because it's video. And I have an actual video feed. So my podcast hosting, I've got to store the video, I've got the editing time, I've got booking the guests, blah, 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 blah. Um, but I love doing it. The question is, would people pay for what they can already get free? Okay, you throw some extra stuff in. And what I, what I think would happen is you'd end up with those people who are, are really enjoy the content you create, just doing it because they want to support you. Yeah. Yeah, and and I I think that I've had some success with that. People wanting to support me in various <laughs> crowdfunding campaigns that I've done in the last little while. My most recent one being my book, which you now have a copy of, and uh, I saw you do a really wonderful unboxing video. Uh, yeah. Uh, between now and, and the last time that uh, that we talked. So I'm going to put a link to uh, the unboxing video uh, in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com when this episode uh, goes live there. But um, and you're holding up anaglyphic I feel glasses. like I'm in the 1950s when I do this. Well, I, I, that's obviously when they were sort of invented, uh, or I think it predates that. But you know, that's when you might have gone to a black and white uh, movie in the cinema um, that was projected in anaglyph, and you would wear the glasses and you would see it in three dimensions. And sadly, actually, a lot of those movies from that vintage, um, they don't 
uh, they don't exist anymore. They weren't properly archived and uh, they are just lost in time. Uh, some still exist. And my, my wife and I were joking the other day that we should probably just set one up on the computer and put those glasses on, make some old timey popcorn um, and just kind of laugh at how bad that was and how gimmicky it was at the time. But I digress. Yeah. I digress. Uh, we do have some interesting stories to get into. Oh, yes, this we week. do. And, uh, and some of them kind of get just as geeky as throwing on those red, blue anaglyph glasses and seeing things in three dimensions. Um, but this goes, the first story anyhow, goes all the way back to not exactly the beginnings of photography, uh, but very close to it. Uh, an article from DP Review. Physicists now understand the multispectral qualities of the world's first color photographs. Um, and so I'll read a little bit of this article. And Steve, I, I want your opinion. And you, you told me earlier that you explained this or attempted to explain this to your wife yeah. yesterday. And I want to know how you did it because I don't think I was successful. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so basically, I leaned heavy on the fact that it's multiple spectrums, that it's 26 to 64 spectral samples as opposed to a, you know, it, it, it's it's multi-spectral light measurements. So let, I, I kind of leaned on that. Let's discuss what we're talking about here. Um, uh, Jonas uh, uh, Ferdinand Gabriel Lippmann, uh, known as Gabriel Lippmann, accomplished a lot during his 75 years. Born in Luxembourg in 1845, Lippmann, a physicist, was a pioneer of color photography. His method of producing color photographs, which relied upon interference phenomenon, earned Lippmann the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1908. So... Keep in mind, 1908 ridiculously predates color film in any form. Uh, so what we're looking at here is a way for you to use interference patterns recorded in silver halide. So it, it is a black and white image that has an encoded interference pattern that can reveal color imagery uh, within. So like if you were to view this with just a regular, let's say improper illumination, like if you just hold it up to a light or, or what have you, um, it's going to look like a black and white negative uh, for the most part. And I, they don't show an inverted version of it to see if it would be properly black and white or what have you. But with what they call proper illumination, you are able to create a color image in, uh, in, well, if you won the Nobel Prize in 1908, we'll assume that the technique was successfully demonstrated prior to that time. Uh, and so that is well over 100 years ago. And you can see some really interesting, uh, and there's a whole article on DP Review that describes how the, the technical process works. And it, it, so how did you describe it to your wife then? Because okay. I, I think I failed when I was trying to relate well, it to snowflakes, which was just conflating the issue. The way that I described it is technically inaccurate, but got the sense across is probably a good way to word it. Right. So his work relied on interference phenomenon. And I'm going to quote from the article here. His technique relies on the same interference principles that recently enabled gravitational waves to be detected which is the foundation for holography. And so he captured 26 to 64 spectral samples for his photos. And the key there is that it is multispectral light measurements. In fact, it's the earliest multispectral light measurements that the researchers and authors of a, a paper that's referenced in this had seen. That's what you know caused them to want to go try and recreate it. And so here's the example I used, which while technically inaccurate, kind of will get the point across. When you think multispectral light, think about visible light, what we see. Then think about ultraviolet light. Then think about, you know, whatever other types of, you know, light you might have, infrared, etc. But the, but let's take a look at the visible <coughs> spectrum because it goes from 400 nanometers to 700 nanometers, right? So mm -hmm. th there's a 300 nanometer window of light that we see, and that is collected as regular visible light. Um, and of course, ultraviolet is shorter, infrared is longer, and so on. But um, that doesn't mean that you've got to collect it all at once. You can break it up into bands and do things with that specifically. Um, now, I'm not sure exactly how he was breaking light up into, well, into different... And that's the question is, we don't know. They don't really say in here what spectrums he was capturing. But the idea of multispectral is what I, I leaned on in that 
Imagine if you could capture everything from UV to infrared visible all in one shot and then later reverse engineer what those spectrums were seeing that you may not see in the end result to extract the original image. And that's kind of what they're doing here. Again, I'm way oversimplifying and going arguably down the way wrong road, but it gets you the idea of there are multiple spectrums that he's capturing. Yeah, I, I think that's that the, the, the description here in, in terms of uh, what we're looking at is going to be, I think, properly the visible spectrum, but you're using an interference pattern to encode things. And I might be wrong in how to I just Well, not just encode, to actually distort. You're distorting the colors yep. that are in the spectrum. And uh, so I, I related this to uh, some of my experience with snowflakes because because um, I'm the weird mad scientist guy that uh, can right. relate snowflakes to anything. But uh, I have seen colors in, in hold, ice. Hold on, hold on. We just have to check and make sure that's true. I'll say a word. You say a word back. Hamburger. Snowflake. It's been proven. <laughs> Um, so the idea is that, uh, you can have thin film interference in, well, just about anything, uh, a soap bubble, an oil spot. I've seen it in snowflakes where you have, um, light interfering with itself that then creates color. Uh, and in a snowflake, it's, you've got a, a layer of ice and then a layer of air. It's a bubble trapped inside the ice. And then you have a layer of, of ice underneath that and light would, uh, hit the, the first layer of of the ice and bounce off some of it would some of it wouldn't bounce off it would go in and reflect off the inner boundary between ice and air and so there'd be a bit of a gap there but a very very thin gap um and so the the light that would enter into the ice would be slowed down for a very brief period of time um but because it's so thin when it reflects off of that inner layer and goes back up then it is now out of sync with the light that bounced right off the surface, but out of sync in such a way that a particular color is being generated. Uh, and so you can't get all colors by doing this. Um, if you ever look at a birefringent scale, uh, you know, for using cross polarization, it looks very similar to the interference pattern scales. Not every color is represented. It's very hard to, uh, to create reds, for example. Uh, they're just not very common along this process. So um, using interference patterns and uh, I, I'm not, it's a little bit hazy on the details as to exactly what the quote unquote proper illumination is going to be. And that might change based on um, process evolution over time. Um, but you can see in the chart uh, that we were uh, uh, j just looking at on the screen there, that the interference representation of color, it's got a bunch of really jaggy lines because those are all of those little interference points that are trying to approximate the colors that we would normally be seeing with our own eyes. But that that is what the closest thing that you can get with an interference pattern would be able to generate. So it's an approximation of, uh, of, of it's a proper reconstruction as best as you could with this technique. Um, but I'll be honest, I'd never heard of this technique before. And I mean, it's always been on my uh, on my bucket list of just photographic stuff to explore is, is holography. Uh, and I've got some books on it that are just collecting dust, unfortunately. And if this is akin to holography, I might be able to try and tackle some of these at the same time. Because when you see these images in the right light at the right angle, and they just automatically have color in them, um, yep. it, it seems magical. It is science masquerading as magic. I'll give it that. But it, it's just, it's really neat. Check out this technique. And I'm going to have to dive deeper into it. I just took a cursory look at the article in DP Review, read some of the comments. Um, and uh, the, the final paragraph says, it, it's interesting enough to investigate Lippmann's early 20th century photographic technique using modern tools and science. However, the team believes that revisiting Lippmann's technique can inspire new technological developments as well. Further, the team has already constructed a prototype of a digital Lippmann camera. The team hopes that multispectral image synthesis and a multispectral camera could have intriguing benefits in the 21st century. And I agree. I'm not even sure what those benefits could possibly be. Um, but keep in mind that 
you know, the way we are recording color in most cameras, aside from, you know, Sigma's Foveon technology, is we are collecting independent samples of specific frequencies of light. And we're combining them together through a Bayer pattern or an X-Trans pattern, but you have this color filter array um, that is then, you know, we have maths to figure out exactly what the colors are going to be at the end of that. But what if you didn't need that? Like, what if everything could be simply encoded in black and white, but the color information is still there. There could be advantages in terms of sensitivity. Um, again, sometimes certain colors might not be as uh, as readily reproducible. So maybe this would fall into the scientific realm, at least in the short term. Um, well, but no, I was just going to argue something and that is go going back to this chart. So they used a color checker to try and reverse engineer his original spectrum of light because the reflected spectrum was different than what was exposed. And they tried to reverse engineer that. And if you look at this chart, a couple of things are interesting to me. So first of all, the top one is the original that they took. The second line with the jaggy lines is them recreating a Lippmann plate. The third one is the reconstruction. Well, you can, because you know here how the reconstruction is different from the original, right? In this, in this controlled environment, if that is consistent, not just with a color checker passport, but with other shots, if the waveforms of light, the, the, the spectrum of light that you're getting is predictable between the original and the reconstruction, then you could use AI to fix the mistakes in the reconstruction because it might be predictable. Possibly. I mean, in so the those same colors way that you, you say may not be able to be reproduced, they actually may be able to be reproduced if it, again, assuming that, that this reconstruction has a consistent model. True, but maybe not so true because it would be like trying to reconstruct uh, a proper image from uh, colorblindness, right? Like if you're just missing certain information, you can interpret it and you can guess as to what it should be, but there are going to be guesses where certain things are going to be equal, um, like, you know, uh, putting a green filter on top of a black and white camera and only capturing a certain part of the spectrum and negating the reds. Well, reds might appear the same as blacks. And you just, because it would be filtered out of the, the, the lens. Um, and so they would appear in the end data as the same thing, just as a dark tone. And you might not be able to recover that in every sense. But if it's a stop sign that looks black, then the artificial intelligence algorithms can obviously associate a stop sign with something that should be red. Uh, and right. there might be some ways to, to compensate that. But that now, once you bring AI into it, it, there's a lot more to it than just look at these, these graphs. Well, and, right? and Gary there's, says there's... in, in the chat, he says that, uh, it sounds a lot like how they shoot galaxies and nebulas. Yeah. What, what NASA would do though, is they would take like, uh, x-ray imagery and, uh, ultraviolet and infrared and deep thermal, uh, and of course the visible spectrum in, in various different wavelengths, hydrogen alpha is an important, uh, important output that stars have, um, that is just around the, I think 700 nanometer, uh, cutoff point in the visible spectrum. And they might do a separate image of that and then combine them together with, um, uh, whatever sorcery that the wonderful, uh, image engineers at NASA do to make it look like something that we would see with our own eyes, even though it pushes beyond that. I, I think that's a little bit different, uh, Gary, in terms of how they're imaging and combining things together. Um, but the fact is that you could potentially just collect the light in some encoded way and decode it to make a colorful image from just a, a monochromatic source in a sense. I just find it fascinating. It's fascinating. Um, and you, I, I don't think you mentioned this. You mentioned that that part of the, the distortion here is coming from th shooting through a glass plate that has silver halide, but there's also a mirror involved, liquid mercury mirror yep. that was involved so, in this. And so that kind of goes it, on the- I Think about the time he did this. Yeah, yeah, early 1900s, uh, possibly even late 1800s, depending this on. This is crazy. I mean, literally, this ideas. is people. People were burned at the stake for things like this. This is craziness <laughs> in those times, and I love every bit of it.
I love every bit of it as well. So I want people to take a look at this technology. And I, I would love to dive into, uh, you know, the, the actual paper. I, I tried to, to, to look it up. Uh, it was published in the Proceedings uh, of the National Academy of Sciences. Um, but uh, I could only really get uh, sort of the, the abstract under my belt before I started seeing some crazy equations that didn't make any sense to me. And, and maybe to the actual physicists out there, this makes a little bit more sense. And if you can, if you're listening, actual physicists, and you can distill it down into layman's terms that we could better describe, I would, I would love to hear from you. Um, yeah, I but, would too. That would be awesome. But let's talk about more science, uh, not uh, retroactively discovered, but something quote unquote revolutionary in the article from Petapixel. Um, revolutionary quote space plate could eliminate traditional camera lenses. And that's a bit of a grandiose uh, statement. It would have to be paired with a meta lens in order to completely remove the lens. But there is a research uh, uh, research paper published by researchers at the University of Ottawa. that They've developed a concept that would reduce the size of a lens by a huge margin and effectively eliminate the size of modern optics if combined with a meta lens. And I think we've talked about meta lenses uh, in the past on this podcast. Um, this is not a meta lens. This is not like a thin plate um, that can function as a lens in itself. No, this is a mysterious rectangular prism object that I couldn't really figure out what it was made of or why it exactly behaves in this particular way. But what it does, uh, this uniaxial space plate, um, if you could imagine that it would take light a, a long distance to converge, right? Just because you've got a telephoto lens and you've got to kind of take the, the largest element and through other elements and just kind of shrink that beam down. Um, when you're doing that, it just, it has to happen over a space, right? That, that's why you've got, um, you know, uh, reflex telescopes that uh, have the, a mirror uh, at the base of it to send the light back to the front of the telescope and then come back down again uh, in order to just let the light move along the longest distance that is required in order for you to get the resulting image. But what if you could put something in the path of the light that makes it attenuate faster? Uh, and so that your gap of, I'm just going to make up a number, say like it, uh, it has to be, you know, like 12 inches or so from one lens to the next lens, but you put something in that space and now that gap can close to six inches, right? You can cut it. Well, and let's be clear. You're saying one lens to another lens. Another way to word it would be one element Elements, to one yes. element would, would probably make more sense to people. That's right. And so there is this mystery object that uh, in uh, the University of Ottawa that, you know, this is this is quite valuable because if you're trying to build compact telephoto optics or even smartphone uh, optics that, you know, you can't you, you physically cannot build it with a particular space. But if you could put in a tiny sheet of this thing that eliminates a space um, or uh I don't know what forbidden magic would be actually making a lens element out of this strange material. I have no idea what that would actually entail, but you have the distinct possibility of shrinking down your optical system designs. Now that's great for us here down on earth. Uh, but what about space telescopes? There yes, are so this many, is th this could be revolutionary if it doesn't do anything strange with the light, like, you know, completely changes the wavelengths or it doesn't uh, sound like it does it does it not sound, sound like it, it, does. it so what's interesting here is this to me is this to me is invention done right so so many people go out to try and solve the whole problem and here they went let's okay we've already got metal lenses let's try and build on that so the metal lenses let you shrink the optics themselves okay great the problem is that most light paths require space, like you were describing, between the elements. And again, the, a good example is a telescope. When you when you put like the telescope sitting behind me over here, when I put an eyepiece in it, there's a distance that's needed. Uh, a good way to word it actually is the flange distance in a camera between where you attach the lens and the sensor itself. There is there is an expected amount of distance for light to spread. Their idea was, what if we could just compress that the light spread and control the light spread in such a way? These two parts together let you, instead of, you know, for example, normal lenses and normal light path require a, a certain position of the light ray. 
Now they're working on, it doesn't have to be in a certain position. It just has to come at the right angle. And if you, if you take this, if you take metal lenses, which shrink the physical optics and you take this, the space plate and shrink the space required, imagine the Hubble telescope that was needed to be put in the back of a giant space shuttle and released into space, shrunk down to a size where maybe you could fit it on a satellite. Yeah. You know, you know, that could go to Saturn, right? You could get a Hubble telescope effect on a ship that's flying by Saturn. Imagine. Imagine, and but I, I, it doesn't just apply to space. As I mentioned, our humble smartphones that are itching for every possible way to increase their resolution, increase their reach and their range. We've seen some really interesting sort of uh, uh, periscope type designs uh, using mirrors so that the bulk of the lens is along uh, a, a larger horizontal section that, that, that has been mirrored up um, so that you can get, I think Samsung uh, and uh, possibly Sony and a few others have been showing prototypes of these types of, um, of, of smartphone lenses. But what if... What if you adapted this technology to that as well? Um, there could be uh, either that same lengthy periscoping mirror thing that would get you the equivalent of an 800 millimeter lens or something ridiculous because you can then compress the space in between um, or just a lot smaller in general and more convenient and possibly depending on the cost of how much this is to manufacture, um, less expensive as well. Well, that last part's a big one, but What's interesting is reading the article, they seem, based on a couple of the sentences, to indicate that the level they're at right now is a five-time reduction in space. But they're currently working – I don't. when I say space, I don't mean outer space. I mean in the space used, right? Right. They're working on getting to 100 time uh, and increasing the distance that it can be transmitted. So now you're talking space plates plus metal lenses equals smaller optics with less space – applicable in so many ways a lot of these uh concepts become just um uh you know an article to be quoted casually when new technology comes out uh but this really does feel like it has practical applications um but not just practical applications that we'll see someday practical applications that are directly you know that can be directly built into science and consumer products for which billions of dollars are being spent to develop the next round of technology. Uh, And while that next round of technology is probably well underway, the round after that uh, probably has a lot of question marks and unknowns associated with exactly how they're going to achieve the next level of performance. Um, I mean, the, the James Webb telescope, how many decades was that being worked on? Uh, you know, so some of these things are really long form and it's going to take a while before we see it properly adopted, uh, in all of our, you know, lofty ideas of to where this technology could end up. But if you could limit the space that light takes to just refocus itself, um, then without creating a lens effect on its own, I, I think that we've got a real winning material that I, I seriously hope that, um, that the team led by Dr. Orad Reshef, um, a senior postdoctoral fellow uh, in the Robert Boyd Group, and Dr. Jeff Lu- uh, Lundin, uh, Canada's research chair in quantum photonics, an associated professor in the Department of Physics at the University of Ottawa. I hope they patent this. I mean, I want those brilliant minds to to benefit from uh, from inventions like this, and to uh, hopefully, you know, create a well. A, a, a new environment for us to explore as photographers. And some of the benefits are just so simple, right? The last story we're going to talk about, I won't share it now, but the last story we're going to talk about has to do with a lens that's huge and heavy. And just the benefit of this is just carrying it, weight, the ability to have possibly, you know, making making a leap forward on the technology in my mind here. If you can get those optics shrunk down, now you've saved weight. If you can get the space shrunk down, you've saved size. So now just a landscape photographer hiking to Mount Everest could take crazy glass with them in theory. Uh, th- there's just so many cool things. Well, I mean, you can get, uh, I think Tokina makes- you see what Terry uh, wrote in the chat? Uh, <laughs> uh, spell spell check. check glasses. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There you go. 
but so the the idea of uh, like a Tokina, I think, has a 400 millimeter reflex lens, which is this tiny little lens that uh, it, it's yeah, it'll give you weird donut bokeh uh, because of it's using this sort of telescope technology and what have you. It's it's not ideal, uh, and it's manual focus, and I think like the f13 or something um but that exists because you might want to take some really big glass out in the field on a hike um but if there's a better solution i'm all for it now also uh you know striking the news and you know it's going to be a good episode when i'm pulling articles from fizz.org when you Uh, sent me this link i went the first thought that hit me was how did he even find this thing uh, I just, it came across my newsfeed because the algorithms wow. of the internet know what to feed me. Uh, and so there is a light shrinking material that lets an ordinary microscope see in super resolution. So this is actually a, a problem that, that we see with, uh, with smartphone sensors. And it's one of the reasons why I am sort of against the idea of having crazy high megapixel counts on incredibly small uh, sensors because you know at some point you are limited by the wavelength of light itself right you know red light is 700 nanometers if you make a, um, a, a photo site on a sensor smaller than that well you're battling against yourself because red light's not going to fit inside it's, or it's going to you know, be uh, highly distorted uh, or not as represented as it should be. So this is another crazy new material that um, it looks like somehow, and I'm not sure of exactly what the physics are, but there's a picture here that you're showing um, that takes, and it's not doing what you're thinking. It, 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 what's depicted is a, uh, a square, uh, that looks like it is just dark and tinted. Um, it almost looks like carbon paper under a light or on a light table. It sort of. looks yeah. like nothing. Um, but what I'm assuming is happening here, uh, based on the article, is they're taking white light and they are shrinking its wavelength somehow. Uh, and again, there's the, the mystery science as to how they're exactly doing that is unknown to me, but it's much darker. So my guess is they are somehow, because uh, you can't just shrink the wavelength of light because the smaller wavelengths are higher energy. Where would that energy come from? Um, but in doing this, it gets a lot darker. So by some voodoo, they are uh, they're taking the volume of light at a higher uh, or at a longer wavelength and converting that into less volume of light at a shorter wavelength with probably some loss in the process. Now, this is important because if you are shooting an image with a, uh, a shorter wavelength, you inherently have higher resolution. And so if you are attaching that to a sensor that can, it's almost like you're shifting the entire visible spectrum from 400 to 700 nanometers down to like, I don't know, uh, 300 to 600. That doesn't sound like a huge shift, but it could increase the resolution significantly on very small things with microscopy. Or if you can design a lens uh, using quartz optics or other things that allow a high transmission of ultraviolet light, and you know exactly what that shift is down into a shorter wavelength, then you can create smaller pixels for smartphones. um, And the software in the camera itself will know exactly how to remap those uh, those wavelengths back to what the visible spectrum will be. So you've got a combination of revolutionary new technology, exotic optics, of course, that would require the transmission of shorter wavelength light and software in computational photography that is able to correct for that back to the world that we see with our own eyes, all to the end of allowing for smartphones to have higher resolutions and microscopes to have higher resolutions with this little fancy magic wafer. Well, does that, and that does that make sense? So the little yes, it does. And the little magic fancy wafer is what's so fascinating to me about this whole thing is you don't need any specific gear. It's just the wafer. Like if you add this wafer 
to any normal microscope, any light microscope, it turns it into a super resolution microscope. This is not entirely true, though, Steve. Because well, according uh, according to the article, though, it specifically says if you put a sample on the material and put it under a normal microscope, no fancy modifications needed. Well, it it all depends on what the transmission properties of of light are for the objective used in the I'm microscope. I'm guessing on phys.org, though, they wouldn't say that. Uh, so, uh, they, they make microscopes. If this was, if the, I won't say another website name, but if this was a photo website, I, I, I might think, okay, they tried to simplify it. But the fact that this is the article on phys.org, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of go with them that you're going to get benefit on a normal s- scope. And we should, by the way, we should add, why does this matter? If you are trying to shoot, they talk about the fact that a normal light microscope has, has a resolution limit of about 200 nanometers, whereas you know, this tech can go subcell to 40 nanometers. And the reason that matters is if you want to see subcell material in a living cell, you can't do that with a normal light microscope. You would need to Je- use a confocal microscope or something a little bit more exotic. But here's the thing. Uh, my, my point was about the optics involved. You can use a regular microscope that has a regular objective and not get the perfect results. But they make microscope objectives that are tailored to the transmission in shorter wavelengths in ultraviolet. All the big manufacturers, Michitoyo, Nikon, etc., Olympus, they'll make UV uh, objectives that just have greater transmission in the, U- in the UV spectrum attached to a regular microscope, not a confocal or right. anything else that's, that's strange. So I think that you would still need to pair it with an ultraviolet objective. Um, and in doing so, because again, the wavelengths have become shorter, you want to make sure that they're passing through the lens and you'd have to have um, a uh, sense uh, that is also able to detect those shorter wavelengths of light. Um, but you Again, don't need I'm a gonna, different I'm microscope. Gonna lean on, I'm going to lean on them. And that is what you're saying with the, the eyepiece may make a difference, may improve it. But I'm going to kind of guess based on reading this article, I read this thing three times, and I'm kind of guessing that you're going to see benefit with no added stuff. You will. But again, because if you, if you have if you, 700 nanometers that becomes 500 nanometers, then then it's still completely viewable with a regular objective. However, you will lose the, um, uh, I guess, the visibility of things that are already in the blues and the violets that then get shifted to shorter wavelengths. Those they're might referencing just 40 nanometers in this, and they're referencing... Anyway, so, but here's the thing. If you use one of those special microscopes, like an electron microscope, you generally have a a vacuum chamber, so you can't have live cells. So even if it's a minor modification, as you're saying, a different objective or something like that, still, the ability to see live cells at a subcell level, this this is scientific gold. Th- right this here. is going to revolutionize the way that we investigate yes. and and explore science Diseases. on a very small scale. And it's it's all it's all predicated on the idea that yeah you know what we are limited by the the resolution of light um, and the wavelengths of visible light the stuff that we can record and see if we could somehow remap that to smaller numbers that solves the problem. And again, yeah. that, that somehow is unknown to me in this article. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that they would keep this as whatever secret sauce they have uh, in order to make this happen, um, and at least until it's patented and can be profited from. But wow, this was really cool because it's not just the sciencey stuff. Um, this could have an impact on our smartphones and the resolutions in the cameras that we use. So two articles back to back, that space plate technology, pair that with a metal lens, pair that with this light shrinking material and a new sensor that can detect all the wavelengths that come on the other side of that. Um, I thought uh, that we were kind of nearing the end of uh, of how cameras could progress, especially on a small scale. Um, these articles together show me that we have a lot still to go. Um, and yeah, a normal microscope, no fancy modification needed. A different objective is no fancy modification. Most regular right. microscopes. A- again, they're not saying no modification, no fancy. So that's a, that's a good catch. But again, to the people at, at UCSD that did this, really on it, I, this is one of those, like sometimes Don picks these stories, like this one, that you kind of go, I don't even know how he can read this and understand it. And this is one of those stories that as I read this and then I read it again and then I read it again last night, I'm looking at it going, 
I this I'm really excited to see what comes from this. Right? I mean, this really yeah. could revolutionize science on levels from medical to innovation. The more we can observe, the more we can know. The more we know, exactly. the more questions exactly. we can ask that we otherwise wouldn't have even thought to ask, and the more solutions to problems we will discover. So or I will word it slightly differently than you. I mean, it's not a ton different, but I would almost say it's almost like macro photography, <laughs> the universe at our feet. Sorry, I had to do it. No, plug in my book, Steve. I, I'm glad you <laughs> like the book. Have you have it? Have you had a chance to uh, to read through it at all? Yes, I have. And the first thing I did was pull these things out and start doing the 3D stereoscopic images. Uh, I will say it is. Um, I during my unbox, I did an unboxing video for those that don't know. And during the unboxing video that I did, I, I alluded to this too. I know Don. I knew this book was going to be off the charts, crazy detailed fun. I am even surprised at how much detail is in this freaking book. It is, it is, uh, I'm telling people the way I'm describing it is it's the encyclopedia. Like behind me on the wall back here in the bookshelf, I have an eight DVD set, the encyclopedia of card magic uh, from a well-known uh, magician who's passed on now, Daryl. This to me is the encyclopedia of macro photography. If you want to learn something, it's in this book pretty much. Well, no, there's things that I didn't put in the book. I didn't I didn't cover water droplet collision photography. Um, I didn't cover tilt shift macro photography. I didn't cover macro videography. You know, there are there are things that a second edition might be able to include or at least a um, second volume to this particular a book. A sequel, um, as it were. But it's already 384 pages with nearly 90,000 words. So it better be good enough for most people right it's now. It's a heck of a book, my friend. It is, it is a, a heck of a book. Well, thank you. And people can grab a copy of that at skycrystals.ca if you have not already. And uh, and you can find a link to that on, on my website at doncom.ca. There's a banner at photogeekweekly.com as well uh, for you to find out where that book is. And if you've already ordered it, thank you so much. I am shipping out typically over 100 books a day. Uh, and I still have a, a big backlog. So forgive me if I haven't gotten to your book yet. Um, but uh, they're, they're all getting out the door uh, as quickly I'm as, jealous as of I can Gary. happen. Gary uh, in the chat said, the limited edition got to Texas last Saturday, far surpassed expectations, beautiful. Uh, yeah, I, 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 can I have the normal one. I can imagine the leather bound on this is gorgeous. Yeah, the, the leather bound, you know, I did such a good job, as people have been telling me, I don't want to toot my own horn, on the cover of the regular edition with the spot gloss and everything else. Uh, it seems like no matter what I do with a leather bound edition, I can't match that level of beauty. It is more tactile. It's got an extra chapter in the back on the limited edition. Uh, and I painstakingly outlined one of my most detailed snowflakes ever to go on the cover of the limited ed edition. So thank you, Gary, for picking up a copy of that. I appreciate the support and glad they're getting into people's hands. Um, let's talk about uh, our final story here. Um, and this is, uh, rare lenses. So, uh, it's kind of comes in two parts that I found articles on in this past week. So I figured let's just bring it up and see what kind of unusual optics we may have come across over time. Uh, first part is rare Zeiss planar 50 millimeter F 0.7 lens designed for NASA could fetch up to $150,000 at auction. Um, and, uh, that follows on with an, uh, another article that the world's longest autofocus SLR lens, the Canon EF 1200mm f5.6, comes up for sale at auction in Germany. And the last one of those uh, sold for, I, I think it was $180,000 or something. Um, so both of these lenses are unique, unusual, and it's also an interesting discussion because I think it was uh, the uh, uh, the Mitocon Speedmaster 50 or 55 millimeter f0.95 lens has just been released on the Leica L mount recently. And so fast glass is becoming more commonplace. A lens designed uh, in 1966 should not be a hard thing to replicate now by modern lens manufacturers if they wanted to create something. But f0.7 
was kind of interesting to see. Um, there were only 10 copies of that lens ever made, six of which went to NASA. One of these lenses is currently up for auction by Lights Photographica Auction. And by the way, if you haven't checked out the Lights Photographica auctions, there's all sorts of cool stuff you'll never be able to afford um, that are listed there. At least I can't. Too rich for my blood. Um, so this Carl's eyes. You know what you should add to this, though? What's that? Is this was actually designed for NASA. Yes, it was. So this and lens so was made for NASA Apollo missions specifically to photograph the dark side of the moon. Of the 10 copies, like you said, six of them went to NASA. Three of them, we talked about this when we talked about uh, uh, low light lenses before. Yep. Three of them went to Stanley Kubrick because he used them in the movie Barry, Barry uh, Linden, Light yeah. Linden for a scene that was lit entirely by candles. It won an Oscar for cinematography in 1966 because of one of these lenses. But what amazes me is just look at that thing. It's look at the beautiful. knobs on this thing. It's I, you know amazing. What? I, I love the tactile old knobs and dials on lenses from that that era. I, I almost wish that I could get a modern lens that does have perfect fine autofocus. But if I want to flip that switch off, like I, I, I'm then, uh, you know, riding in a 1970s, uh, you know, muscle car kind of thing you know like it just has that feel to it um and you know it's been adapted i think to the nikon f mount in this particular case it's got a tripod mount option thing on it but um these these lenses these oddities i i'm actually if it could be made then and it doesn't look very big i'm wondering a why uh, you know, Liowa or Venus Optics that has a Liowa brand. Is it Zong Yi or Yang Zi Optics? I can never get that name right. Um, or Seven Artisans or Pergear or any of the other. The esoteric brands. The esoteric brands that are doing a lot of manual focus lenses that fit into all sorts of interesting niches. Why haven't they replicated this type of stuff? Because well, I would think that would be kind of fun. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go... Uh, Mike Martin is in the the chat, and I'm going to kind of go down a road he'll understand because he's in the music industry. You can recreate a Martin Herringbone guitar today. We have the technology, but a musician's going to want the whatever 1955 Martin Herringbone because it's going to sound differently no matter what you do. And while I while I recognize that they could probably recreate this, arguably the limitations that they had in that day gives this glass characteristics that I'm not sure they can recreate. Well, in other and, words, and it's, it's, almost like, it's almost like digital audio just never really captures what's on the original tape or vinyl in many True. cases. I, well, because th there's a bit of, uh, you know, I guess, character to it, for lack Atmosphere. of a better term. Yeah, uh, but uh, you know, Stanley uh, uh, Kubrick in, in his uh, uh, film, uh, Barry Lyndon, uh, they, the film wasn't even good enough at the time. They really pushed the limits. And we, we always talk about, uh, when it comes up to 0 0.7, uh, aperture that they used it in that, in that film, but it wasn't just, oh, all of a sudden we can shoot in candlelight now. No, they had like hundreds of candles in the room yep. and, and the candles themselves were not regular candles. They had like three or four wicks all wound together yeah. uh, in order to be super, super bright in every one of these custom-made candles for that specific scene. That man pushed every limit of technology uh, in order to make that scene work in that day. And he deserves accolades, even though, you know what? I've seen the movie. It's not, it's not fantastic, um, but technically... It was one of the the groundbreaking films of the era. Well, and I'll go to the new movie now, Army of the Dead, which if you watch it, it was there. There are scenes with this. I don't want to spoil the movie, but ex, just extreme shallow depth of field. It was shot with a 50 millimeter 0.9 and it's gorgeously done. The movie itself is kind of lazy, in my opinion, in the way that it attacks some things. But but it's the same thing when you take the technology and you utilize it in a way that accentuates it. It's 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 positives. I think you get some cool stuff, and I think we could do some amazing stuff with this lens. But it's completely different than this twelve hundred. Well, yeah, the, the Canon twelve hundred millimeter lens reminds me of a lens that I have here in my collection that requires two hands to hold. It's this guy right here. Um, 
So this is this is massive. This is, I think, a uh, an airplane lens. It doesn't actually have a, a name on it, but it <clears> does <throat> say 100 millimeter f 0.73 on on the front of that guy there. Um, and I bought this after uh, a story that we had covered many episodes ago, where uh, somebody had took one of these and fit it inside like some Fresnel lens to see behind objects. Um, and I remember that article and then I tracked down a copy of the lens. I forget who makes it again. It's just, it's not on it at all anywhere. Um, but I got one uh, and it is so gigantic and heavy. Yeah, I don't want the esoteric lens manufacturers to remake something like this, uh, make something smaller. But that reminds right. me of that Canon 1200 millimeter uh, f5.6 lens. And man, they only made a few of these things. Um, you would have to wait a few years if you ordered one because some of the lens elements, they're so huge and so specialized. It's not just regular glass. Uh, you know, if it's a fluorite lens element, Canon has to grow fluorite in a laboratory and it just, it takes time to do Which that. they did actually for this lens. Uh, and you can't really tell from the picture. Let me scroll it down where you can see this picture. You can't really tell a ton. Where's a better picture? There we go. You can't tell from this picture. This thing is 36 pounds. It's two feet, seven inches long. And that front barrel is nine inches across. It was $90,000 when it was new. And they only made two a year, a total of about 12 or so. But you don't have to worry. Like if you wanted to use an ND filter, it's only 48 millimeters because it goes on the back. Right. So yeah. I, it would have, would, a was it a filter drop in, uh, in that case? Uh, or I, was I, it? I think it was for a sheet, not a screw on. Yeah. Uh, B and H had one of these back in 2015 listed at $180,000. Yep. And, uh, you know, based on its rarity and you know, I love when camera manufacturers say, I don't care how much it's going to cost. I don't care how long it's going to take us to make it. Let's just have a trophy lens. Right. You know, uh, and you know, it's, it's not even for consumers to buy. Right. Like Sports Illustrated was I think they bought a couple of these and and I'm sure government agencies may have invested in one uh, in various parts of the world. But very few of them, I think, ever ended up into private hands. And now they're starting to uh, to, to, to get there. Mike says in the chat, by the way, um, that uh, the limits of tech at the time would certainly have led to characteristics that make vintage glass special. That being said, bring on the remake. And, yeah, and, please and bring on the remake. The, the, the characteristics of those older lenses might be the types of coatings that they used, but that technology still exists today. Yes. Um, as, as, so, I mean, that, that should be, and if it has to be different coatings, well, so be it. That technology has just improved and you might get less chromatic aberration and albeit less character, but still bring on the remake. Um, and Andrew H says, uh, re referring to uh, Stanley Kubrick, uh, that he also pushed the film stock. Yeah, and so- Very true, yeah. So he, he did everything to, to make that work with that F0.7 uh, uh, lens. But I can only imagine. Uh, I've shot with the Canon 85mm F1.2 lens. And autofocus was a non-starter with that. Um, you know, in fact, I would often, uh, I, I remember I had rented a copy of it for my, my stepsister's wedding. And uh, I was trying to focus on the eyes for people. And after a while, I just realized I'm just going to hold my hand on the focusing ring hold my finger on the shutter button and just kind of take a whole bunch of photos while I slightly moved the focus uh, in order to just say, okay, I know I just got 20 shots out of focus, but the 21st shot somewhere in the mix, uh, that's going to have the eyes properly sharp. Yeah, just uh, rack the focus through a, a range. But I know wedding photographers who love that 85 1.2. They live on it as a, as a portrait lens. I don't know how they shoot it. I see them shooting it at 1.2. They do. Yeah, and, and I tried. And that was the only technique that I had that actually worked. Uh, I'm sure that if I had more time with it, I would become a little bit more intuitive to exactly its ins and outs and, and how I can not just... And, and this is a technique that I use for macro photography of like shifting my entire body forward and backward. But your focus would become so shallow that especially on a, on a modern camera that has focus peaking, you wouldn't touch the focus. You get it in the same vicinity and you just kind of lean forward or backward to shift your focus to make sure that it hits the eyes because that is actually a more fine-tuned adjustment of physically moving the or changing the distance between the subject rather than adjusting the focusing ring itself. And anybody who's tried to rotate a dial at a micro level 
knows exactly what you're talking about. Well, especially if it's a high stressful thing, like if you are a wedding photographer uh, and and this is your gig, I mean, you're not you're not totally relaxed like I was. I'm like, if these shots don't turn out, well, it's all right. I'm not the official photographer for this thing. Uh, right. It was just it was just my experiment. But uh, anyhow, I think that rind, uh, winds down our stories for the week, Steve. And um, before we get into our picks of the week, uh, where can people find you online? We teased it earlier, BehindTheShot.tv, correct? Yes, BehindTheShot.tv, or quite often, I'm just hiding out in the backyard here, but so you can find me there too. Uh, <laughs> BehindTheShot.tv is the podcast. You can also find Behind the Shot, the podcast, on YouTube. It's YouTube dot com slash behind the shot we've got a youtube uh, i'm sorry we've got a Flickr group for behind the shot for the image critique shows that we do and wherever you get your podcasts you can find behind the shot there as well uh my website is stevebrazel.com it's like the country of brazil but it's two l's and of course i'm on twitter and instagram most of the time it's at steve brazel or at behind the shot tv uh, yeah, on Twitter. And uh, uh, and I, I follow you on Twitter. You're always commenting uh, with a, a lot of our uh, circle of friends and professional photographers and having some great conversations about that. So make sure you that know you why follow I, Steve. I will I will say there are some people out there. Uh, and I include you in this group. There are some people out there right now that are doing some amazing stuff on a creativity level. There are some great creatives out there. Photo Joseph is doing great work. Uh, Alex Lindsay is doing great work. Um, you're doing an amazing work. Curtis Judd, Renee Ritchie, uh, Aunt Pruitt, um, the, the photo workshop I'm going to be doing with, uh, uh, Freddie Clark and Aunt Pruitt and Andrew Scrivani or Scrivani. I, I actually have a, a, a recording for hands-on photography coming up soon with Aunt, and, uh, very much looking forward to that discussion. I'm not sure if I should tease exactly what the topic is going to be yet. No, no, but. let it be a surprise. Cause, and he's got, I mean, he's had some amazing, he had Freddie Clark on there talking about food stuff. He had, I was on there for a little bit. He had, uh, my buddy shot live photo is what it is on Twitter, but Alan Hess was on there. You're going to be on there. He's doing killer stuff with hands-on photography. It really is. He is. And um, so thank you, uh, Steve, for uh, telling people where people can find you online. I am at photogeekweekly.com. Check out the show notes, everything that we're talking about here. And I will put a link to the unboxing videos. Uh, there's the one that you did, Steve, but there was also one from fellow macro photographer Stuart Wood. And I'll make sure that uh, anybody that wants to see that in anticipation of receiving their book gets a chance to do that. But we have our picks of the week section. Oh, yes, we do. Um, and uh, I, I want you to go first here. Uh, and and I, I, I'm really curious as to your thoughts on your pick. So I have been a user of this software since it first came out and was originally owned by Nick. And then Nick sold it to Google. They came out with Snapseed kind of based on the, the Nick collection software. And then Google let it die. And there was a point in time where DxO bought the Nick collection and their first release people complained about. And they complained because they said, oh, there's not a lot of new features. It's and now I got to spend 60 bucks or whatever it was again. And, and it used to be free under Google's banner. And right? it was free under Google. Well, but Google let it die. Yeah. Because they weren't making money. I mean, if they were making a ton of money on it, maybe they wouldn't let it die. But DxO took it, and the first thing they did was there were tons of inconsistencies and problems and crashes under Photoshop. They fixed that. So that first release was getting everything stable and solid again and updating all of the code. Yes, the feature set was pretty close to identical to what it was before, but it worked. It was updated, and it was solid. Well, now they have released version 4 of the Nick collection. This is my favorite hands down set of plugins that I ever use. Um, this is Viviza and it's silver effects pro and color effects pro and, and a bunch of other plugins that are included in the Nick collection. And what they've done is the interface is completely different. I mean, I shouldn't say completely. There are a lot of new stuff. So there's more sliders on the side rather than having to do them through U points. The U points are streamlined, but the control points, the U points can be saved in your presets now. That's really cool. Oh, cool. You can adjust the saturation of a specific tonal range. And they have something new called meta presets. And what this does is it lets you take, I'm going to try and describe this and fail. It lets you take multiple NIC plugins, 
do different settings and save all of that from multiple plugins into one preset. Just in Lightroom now, there's a last edit feature where whatever you did last in Nick, you can reapply. There's a smart copy and paste. Silver Effects Pro, they took a feature that they've had in their, their image editor, DxO Photo Lab, called Clearview, which is, it's kind of like Dehaze that's in Lightroom, but it's also a contrast tool and a bunch of other things. They've moved that into Silver Effects Pro. They've got better film emulations. Bottom line is, this software, as far as I'm concerned, is really, really well done. It's a great new update. It's not super expensive. And, and they have a 30-day free trial. If you decide to buy right now, it's on a launch sale for version 4 through the end of June. Instead of $149, it's $99. If you have a previous version, instead of a $79 upgrade, it's $59.99, so we'll call it $60. And to me, it is the, the $60 I paid to upgrade this may be the best photo investment I made in, in the last year. That's an impressive statement, uh, and I trust your opinion. So um, that's really cool. I'm going to have to check it out. I haven't used Nick in a while. Um, I did remember, you know, finding value in the Silver Effects uh, uh, plugins. In fact, what I used to do is I would um, take a version of my image, run it through Silver Effects. Not because I wanted a black and white image, but because I loved the tonal treatment of an image. Yes, and then I would take that into Photoshop as a layer and change the blending mode on that layer to luminosity. Yep. And it would apply the tonal range to the color image. And then I would, using a layer mask, just kind of fade that off to only the parts of the image where that was uh, useful to be represented. Um, what you just described to me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give somebody a reason why what you just said is so important. So I learned that tip from Alan Hess, who's a well-known music photographer. I mentioned him earlier. Uh, shot live photo on Twitter. I learned that tip from Alan Hess where we had both shot the tour with Roger Waters, The Wall. And he posted a picture and I went, oh my God, how did you get his leather jacket to look so like I can reach out and touch the leather? He said, I go to Silver Effects. I duplicate the layer. I go to Silver Effects Pro. I choose the sixth one, which is high structure smooth. I put that in luminosity mode on top of the color image. I lower the opacity to about 30%. And then if I don't want it in any areas, I mask it out. Boom, done. There you go. It's exactly and what I just described. It, it is my favorite, hands down, it is my favorite processing tip because it's not just a contrast that you're getting. It's, it's this level of three-dimensional detail that will pop into almost any image. It's awesome. Well, Steve, that is a great segue to my pick of the week, talking about three-dimensional detail, because my pick is something really simple. You, you were holding them up a, a number of times, just anaglyph glasses. Get some of these, people. You, you can, like, these are little lorgnettes. They actually don't have things that can uh, uh, sit on your, your eyes, just you can just hold them up. But you can buy a pair of anaglyph glasses for easily under $10 on any marketplace website, whether it be Amazon or eBay or what have you. And why do you really care? Well, it's actually far easier for you to create 3D imagery than you've ever really well, thought about because you haven't tried it, most people. Um, so one one easy way is to like just physically uh, put the... Uh, on a larger scale, it's called the cha-cha maneuver, where you just kind of shift your weight from one foot to the other. Uh, and you take one picture in one position, one picture in another position. And you can easily combine those together with free software uh, called Stereo Photo Maker. And you can build anaglyphs within there, whether it's uh, uh, red and blue or, you know, uh, I think there's like orange and green glasses. There's modes where you can choose what anaglyph uh, system that you want to be using. And you can start to experiment with stereoscopic 3D photography. Uh, I, for macro work in the past, have taken my camera on a focusing rail, but positioned it horizontally so that I'm not going through the subject in a linear fashion. I'm moving the camera left and right in a very um, calculated type of way. And I'll often actually take you know four or five different images and combine whichever ones have the right separation that makes the most sense for me. And if you don't know what that is, like I didn't when I started trying, you start to experiment and see what works and what doesn't. Um, sometimes the effect can be too dramatic or too subtle. Uh, and so we are three-dimensional creatures. I mean, we see in 3D. 
yet almost all of our photographic exploits are with a single lens in two dimensions. And it does a disservice to our senses to not see things in 3D. I'm not saying do it all the time. No, no. But I'm saying that we should really experiment with this stereoscopic 3D stuff. And honestly, a single digit expense is all yeah. you need in order to start to play around with this type of stuff. Um, and I've had a lot of people that have gotten my, my book and they've seen the, the chapter on that and they've started to experiment with it. And I've had some people send me anaglyphs of their own. So here's what I want you to do. Um, if you do decide to go down this rabbit hole and buy a pair of these glasses and uh, and try to do something in 3D, send me a copy of the photo. I'd love to see it. I'd help you critique it because there's different knowledge in putting together a stereoscopic 3D image rather than a regular photograph in terms of composition or setting the stereo window. I'll help you through it. Just show me what you got. Pick up a pair of anaglyph glasses and uh, and have fun and stay creative along the way, exploring something brand new uh, using all the existing gear that you already have. Well, and again, the your book, I think it's page 355, is the start of the stereoscopic section of the book, uh, is a great example of what can be done. And the book comes with these things. I'm not doing a commercial for your book. I'm just saying, if you want to see really good examples of what can be done and how cool it can be, here's a good starting point for you to look at. Thank you very much for that, Steve. And thank you for being the uh, the guest host on this episode of Photo Geek Weekly. 150 Always episodes pleasure. is a milestone and uh, hope for 150 more and more than that uh, still going forward. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you to everybody that was in the, uh, the chat. Terry says time for a beer. Enjoy that beer. I might join you, Terry, virtually. Um, but uh, I'm still not fully vaccinated, Steve. I, I, have you gotten both of your vaccines yet? I've gotten both my vaccines, yeah. Oh, the second one left me not feeling good for a couple of days, but but uh, now I'm fully vaccinated and happy as heck. Well, you might be able to get out and shoot, but for me, I still have to stay in. So I'm going to keep that tagline until I'm two or three weeks after my second vaccine. So for everybody listening, it's time to stay in and shoot. <laughs>